you'll hear this story and you'll also be gaining knowledge when you listen to it on how to do these things. I realized that like my concern was really just what people were going to think of my decision and oh my god she's crazy what is she doing she's not you know she's supposed to be pursuing a career this is when she's supposed to be finding a job and I that doesn't appeal to me that never appealed to me. Play a major role in spreading the love and the joy and uh, reducing our imprint you know for for future generations and for all that we share this planet with. I was just embarrassed. I felt like I couldn't do it, like I'd already failed. I had no idea what I was doing. What did I get myself into? What was I thinking? Our history of humanity really revolves around great people. And that's, that's all we know about. And why is that? It's because the insignificant people weren't important enough that somebody would take the time to document their life. Hello everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Kaylin Otto and you're listening to The Unruly Podcast. I am super happy to have you here today. Well, one, just thank you for listening. And two, because I have some big announcements to make before we get into today's episode. So if you're following along with me on social media or even through the newsletter, you saw that I released a big announcement where I'm basically pushing the Unruly Travel blog along to the next step in its evolution, and Unruly Travel is becoming Unruly Living. Now, not to fear, I will still be talking a lot about travel because how can I not? But you may have noticed over the years that I talk about so many other things, like so many other topics that I learn about through travel that may be kind of related to travel, but not directly. So we're turning the blog inside out with this umbrella of unruly living, and there's going to be six pillars under it. So the first one is, of course, travel. All of the travel guides I've written, all of the gorgeous travel photos and videos will still be there, will still be shared, but I'll also be talking about unruly eating and veganism, the unruly body, unruly gender and sexuality, the unruly home, so think natural buildings, living off-grid, unruly grief and action, so think of emotions and activism. Like I said, I already talk about these things, but we're about to go more in-depth into all of these six pillars of unruly living. So if you go to unrulytravel.com, you'll notice that I redid a lot of the homepage of the website and there are more big changes coming. But at the very top of it, you'll see six different sections for these pillars that I just mentioned. And as of now, you can only click on unruly travel in nature. So go explore that section. Look through the blog blog posts, listen to the podcast episodes that you find within those blog posts, and check out the beautiful photos of all of the unruly nature and travel destinations that I've been to. Each week, I will be updating a new section on the blog so that you can click on it and explore that section. And then, of course, over time, these sections will be filling up with incredible blog posts, videos, pictures, and podcast episodes. So that means that I will be looking for guest writers to come on and write about these subjects if you feel called to. So my email is in the show notes. If you're excited about any of the topics that I just talked about and you think that you might want to write about one of them and have it on the Unruly blog, let me know. 
I think it is a much needed next step with the blog and I'm just giving myself even more permission to write about things that I already care about and am passionate about and share about all the time with you. Before we get into today's episode, I have one more thing to share with you. I have to talk to you about Rhino, who is our sponsor for today's episode. Now, if you listened to the last episode, they were just launching, which was really exciting, and it's been fun to watch some of you listeners and other folks get on the app and fill it up with all of these incredible travel experiences. So if you don't know, Rhino is a social travel app that enables people to share and discover travel experiences through photos and videos. So basically, you're going to go click on the link in my show notes, download the app, sign up, create your profile, and think of Instagram stories. That's what the experiences are a lot like through Rhino, so they're really fun to make. The thing that's different about Rhino, though, versus other social apps or travel apps that are already out there is that diversity in travel and representation matters a lot to Now, the cool thing about Rhino that makes it different from other social apps or even travel apps is that when you create your profile, you can add your identity to it and all of your experiences will be shared into those communities. So for example, if you look on my profile, you'll see female, non-binary, queer, and vegan. So it's really fun to be able to look through other experiences that maybe are similar to yours and see what those people like to do when they travel. So go ahead pause the show, go to the link in the show notes to download the Rhino app, get on there and give me a follow. I'm at unruly underscore traveler and I would love to see you on there. So let's connect. All right, here we go with today's episode. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Unruly podcast. I'm here with my friend Mo and we have some really exciting topics to cover. So Mo, can you give us, just to begin with, a little bit of an intro to you? I mean, there's so much to know, <laughs> obviously, because I've known you for years, but just, you know, a good summary for us. Yeah, um, so I, uh, I'm i Mo. I run a kung fu school in, in North Carolina. Um, I've been vegan for eight years now, and I currently also work for an organization called Peace Advocacy Network as their vegan activist training coordinator. Dang. I feel like you're like a little super, not a little, but you're like a superhero (laughs) all over the place. Um, I have a surprise question for you, but first I wanted to remember how we met. I think it was at a vegan screening of like a documentary. It's a movie. I can't remember what movie it was. It was a documentary um, somebody put together here. That was what, like six years ago? Yeah, that was six years ago, and since then we've been to China together. Um, I've lived at your house. <laughs> we've gone on different adventures, different act, done different activism together, and uh, now we still live in the same state, but uh, like four hours away from you now, so it's a little bit farther. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a lot of history with Mo and a lot of question or a lot of stories that I hope we get to talk about on this podcast. But my surprise question for you, Mo. Because you mm-hmm. did not mention that you are a really good cook as well. Is if you were a specialty burger, what would you be called? A specialty burger? <laughs> what would because for everyone listening, Mo makes really good vegan food, but his specialty is like burgers and like that really rich sort of junk food that you really crave that you want to veganize. Mo's really good at that. 
what would I be called? Um, so let's see, like, what would your favorite vegan burger consist of? If you made uh, the ultimate vegan burger, what would you put on it? Let's see. I'll definitely have some vegan cheese, jalapenos. Ooh. Uh, maybe some crispy onions. Ooh. Almost like a Southwestern type of burger. Okay. So maybe because of the jalapenos, maybe most spice? Most spice. There we go. All right. <laughs> like a little bit of spice in there or mo crunch with the onions? Mo crunch. <laughs> yeah. Mo meaty. Yep. <laughs> okay. Thank you for playing along. I love those surprise questions. I think guests are just like, this is really weird. Why are you asking me this? I want to talk about Kung Fu today and veganism and your work with the Peace Advocacy Network. But... I know that a lot of people just don't know what Kung Fu is at its core. People are confused because there's different types of martial arts, and I know people always confuse it with karate. So mm -hmm. can you just start by telling us what Kung Fu is, and then we're going to go into how it's connected to veganism, because I'm really interested in this. Yeah, so um, Kung Fu was created over 1,500 years ago, and the original intent of it was for health and longevity. Um, the Shaolin monks eventually realized that self-defense is also a part of health and longevity when somebody tries to come attack the temple, you know, they know how to defend themselves. And so that's where a lot of the self-defense started coming in as they learned that they had to defend themselves. But even in self-defense, the monks trained in a way to cause the least amount of harm possible. Mm -hmm. like, no matter what decision you make, you have to live with that decision, right? So the least harm you can do to someone, even if they're attacking you, the better that is for you as well. Right. So, so that's what martial arts was originally intended to be, was more of a for health and longevity, not just this fighting and competition type of thing that it is nowadays. Yeah, I think a lot of people think it's just like punching each other and doing all these cool moves. But until I met you, I didn't really understand that it's like a whole system of philosophy and it has all these different branches. Um, so that's good to clarify for people. So we have mm -hmm. a good branch. So how do you see Kung Fu tying into veganism and where do you see the similarities? A lot of it is because of um, Buddhist and Taoist philosophies in Kung Fu that influenced it. Um, that veganism is a big part of Kung Fu. Um, again, going back to the philosophy of doing the least amount of harm possible, right? Um, the monks didn't consume animal products. They still don't to this day. Um, and again, even in self-defense, you don't, you, you cause the least amount of harm possible, which aligns with uh, veganism. That makes sense. So I know your story, but I want other people to hear your story. So did Kung Fu lead you into veganism or the other way around? How did that go? It was actually a Kung Fu led me into, into veganism. Um, a lot of our practitioners, including my instructors, um, are vegan and they, they talk about it a lot, especially from the health aspect, but also the animal rights aspect mm -hmm. as well. They're, they're very much uh, into that. How did they bring that up to you and what did that feel like as someone who wasn't vegan at the time because say i wasn't vegan i'm trying to think back a long time ago and i think i'm going in for kung fu and then they start talking to me about animal rights were you like mm -hmm. what the heck is going on yeah they kind of they didn't really bring up the animal rights thing right away um they mostly kind of come from the health aspect when they talk to students mm -hmm. generally 
And it was actually, they weren't even talking to me, they were talking to somebody else. I remember the moment where it like clicked. Mm -hmm. One of my instructors was talking to an, another student and all of a sudden I, I heard him just say, 30% of your milk is pus. <laughs> Ew. Like, mm, that's gross. <laughs> and it was like, I just saw images of cows, you know, hooked up to machines and, and everything like that. I'm like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I went vegetarian, which made sense. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, ew, I'll still eat that yeah, pus. Just, just, let, me, let me go vegetarian. So what made you make that next step to cut out dairy? Because it sounds like the pus really grossed you out, but that wasn't enough for you. Yeah, so for me, originally, I, I thought, you know, vegetarian was like the natural progression to veganism. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I wanted to be vegan, but it took me about another four years after that moment to really do it. Um, I think the hardest thing for me was just like societal pressure and you know, being around family and friends and everything. Like, I didn't want to be the weirdo that was eating something different or be difficult, you know, and yeah. have a hard time going to a restaurant or anything like that. When my mom cooks, you know, I didn't want her to feel like she was uh, overworking herself or having to accommodate me in any way. So then I was like, you know, never mind. I'm just going to do it for me. That's that's always what it's been, you know. Yeah. Um, forget what other people think. And that's when I was like, I'm doing it. And... Eight years later, here I am. Woohoo! I feel like that mentality has helped you f come fully into yourself because when you stop caring what other people are thinking about you or how they're criticizing you, like now you're vegan, you have your own school, which mm -hmm. people were really afraid for you to do to quit the comfortable job oh, yeah. that you had. Yeah, yeah, I just quit my job a couple of years ago and people are like, are you crazy? Like, <laughs> how are you going to survive? And da -da -da. I'm like, it'll, it'll work out. Yeah. So I want to talk about that a little bit because, you know, people could look at you now and be like, wow, you have this successful school, but it would be hard to know the backstory unless you told them. So can you talk about how you started at Biogen and then how you kept doing activism there? And that kind of led you to make a career change into what you really wanted to do. Yeah. So um, when I first worked at my last workplace, I wasn't vegan yet. Mm-hmm. So I eventually made the switch while working at that company. And I was kind of one of those vegans. I was like, you know, uh, teach your own, da 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 da. Um, until. <laughs> I'm just laughing because you're just such a hard, hardcore activist, but still so sweet, which now I could never hear you saying, teach their own. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so it wasn't until I started volunteering at sanctuaries and started going to vigils. So I was like, oh, this is a. Uh, this is a real problem. And I remember just going into work, you know, seeing people eat animal products and, and I was working for a biotech company that was, you know, using animal products and testing on animals. And I started to have this kind of uh, conflict in me, you know, that, that what do I do um, with all this information that I have now, but kind of working in a place that didn't really align with my values anymore. Mm -hmm. And it got to a point where I was doing so much activism outside of work that I was like, I can't do all this. I need to do, I need to figure out something where I can balance my time a little bit more, balance my energy a little bit more. And so I decided to do, to create a vegan group at my workplace, um, which that's, that's a long story in and of itself. But eventually I ended up creating this vegan group that had over 120 members in it. Wow. Um, where we brought in different speakers. You've been part of that before with, um, save the animals, save the earth mm -hmm. movement, 
when we brought you in for an, the environmental talk and we had sanctuary work days that we created through the workplace where other employees can come in and volunteer. Um, and it was really cool, uh, you know, uh, doing something like that. I never imagined I would have had an impact like that. I didn't realize how many people were interested in veganism. Mm-hmm. It was cool to meet a lot of other vegans at work too, you know, not to be the only one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and it was, I never imagined, I thought I would get fired at some point. But <laughs> I thought you would too. I was like, well, that's why I lose my job. I have my Kung Fu school because I was doing Kung Fu, as you know. Yeah. At the same time, running my school and working full time at the same time. Um, and so a couple of years ago, when COVID hit, um, then we had to go online. That's when I realized, like, I can't do full time work and Kung Fu running my school at the same time. Something had to go and it wasn't going to be Kung Fu. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided to, to quit my job at that point and focus focus on keeping school alive. Was that scary for you? Because I feel like, you know, you just had your life set up. You have your house and you have your routine and, you know, you have this uh, schedule that you're used to. And now all of a sudden you're completely flipping that on its head. Yeah, it was definitely very nerve wracking. Um, You know, going from having a consistent income to now depending on the business, you know, to survive. and that's part of the reason why I looked for part-time work as well, just to have that little bit of extra, extra income, um, which now I do vegan activism as, as my work, other work. Woohoo! Now all of your work is things that you love. That's right. <laughs> you are the, the vegan educator, but they want you to be. That's right. <laughs> you don't have to argue with people about it. I think that's great because I know that a lot of people want to do activism full-time, but they're in a job that maybe doesn't align with their values or doesn't allow for it, and you just went inside the structure you were already in and created a space to do that, which I think is great because other people could follow in your footsteps until they can do what they love full-time, like you. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that story with us. Uh, And part of, you know, your veganism... Obviously, you do advocacy for, through Kung Fu, but what other ways do you do activism and have you done activism in the past? I've done, I mean, I've joined a lot of different groups in the past. Um, I've done Cubes of Truth, I've done Disruptions, I've <laughs> done Animal Transport. Mm-hmm. Uh, I support sanctuaries as much as I can. Um, so nowadays, it's mostly focusing on um, our Vegan Activist Academy for PAN and then um, and then I do some little fundraisers for, for other sanctuaries. Yeah, you, you do a lot. Can you tell us exactly what you do at the Peace Advocacy Network? And, you know, there's opportunities for people who are listening to join in and get involved. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so um, my main role is um, I'm the Vegan Activist Training Coordinator. Um, so as part of Pan's original main program was called the Vegan Pledge Program. It still is going on. It's a 30-day challenge, like you see with a lot of other organizations. The difference is that we meet weekly for five weeks. Mm. Uh, We have chefs come in. We have uh, different speakers come in, talk about different aspects of veganism. And this is mostly for people that, you know, want to learn about about veganism. They get paired with a mentor, so that way they have somebody to kind of talk to if they're struggling or, or need advice or anything like that for those 30 days. And we now have a virtual program for that. We have some in-person programs for that as well. 
And a majority, a little over half, uh, want to become activists after uh, they take the program. So Pan decided to create this vegan activist training program, and they brought me on to create it, and we started our first one back in February. Um, and so the program, uh, the original program was nine weeks long, okay. and it's for people to do community activism. Uh, so it's an opportunity for people that want to develop some skill sets. And what helps with this program is that it's really to develop the type of activism that you want to do. Mm. Um, it's to kind of like discover yourself a little bit and figure out, you know, where do you fit in and where what you can do for your community. Um, so we've had people that basically create a project of a plan, a project plan of what you want to do with your activism. So we've had somebody that's starting up a sanctuary um, that they got recently land wow. for. Um, we had somebody start up a food business in Pakistan. Wow. Giving out free food right now to get people to learn more about veganism. Um, we've had some people start their own 30-day challenge. Uh, we have one person that's um, getting ready to create a food truck and things like that. So it's really wow. getting people to do the activism that they want to do. Which is so important, and I feel like this is such a cool program because I remember my introduction to animal rights activism. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was a program like this and I just didn't know about it, but they just kind of throw you in and you're fumbling through disruptions and speak outs and sanctuary work, all of these things trying to like find what works best for you. But here you have this awesome program where you're like, let's try this out and this out and do what you want to do because um, I feel like people can get really into their groove and they want you to do what they like doing, but there's exactly. so many ways to do activism. So that's, that is really exciting. And that's cool that you've had so many big, like people taking big leaps, opening a food truck, opening a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. So when people join your program, is it completely free for them? It is a free program. So anyone, anyone could free. It's, uh, it's all online too. Um, so we do everything through Zoom. And uh, basically the structure of it is we give you a workbook to kind of read through some different readings each week to talk about different topics. We talk about different things like um, food equity issues. Hmm. Um, we talk about communication skills, you know, how to effectively communicate, how to get the word out about your activism. Um, and especially important nowadays, racial equity, you know, mm -hmm. and how that's important in the, in the movement. Yeah, I also think that's incredible that you include those things because all of these, uh, you know, forms of oppression and all of these struggles layer together with animal rights and with veganism. And I think a lot of people overlook that at first or they're confused on how those tie in together. So having that education and knowledge up front, I could imagine would save you a lot of time and energy later down the road when you're looking back like I did, like, oh my gosh, wait, how did these things like affect each other? Um, mm -hmm. So that's really cool. Have you had people who have read through that information and been really surprised to see how human um, oppression plays into non-human animal oppression as well? Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of the information that we provided, you know, kind of surprised some people, um, whether it was, like you said, with the racial equity, with the food equity, um, or even just information about animal agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm sure that's a lot to read at the beginning, but that's awesome that they have people there to guide them through all of that. Mm -hmm. So for everyone listening, if you want to sign up for free and be in this program, I will put a link in the show notes that you can go sign up. And so what happens when they sign up? I believe there's a starting date 
when the the timeline starts? What happens if someone signs up late? So sometimes we'll allow people to kind of come in later. Um, so basically, uh, right now, our next program is going to start January 8th, 2023. Um, what we're doing is allowing people to apply early um, because in addition to the now it's 10 weeks program, mm -hmm. uh, we're doing supplemental trainings based on different things that our activists were interested in. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll have our next early application deadline is July 29th. Okay. And then we have another one in September. And the very, very final deadline is December 5th. Okay. So into the January program. But in August, we'll have a supplemental training program um, where we talk a little bit more about some different strategies and, and things like that. Um, but basically the process is, you know, after you submit your application, um, we have a group of judges that look at the applications to see who would be a good fit for our program. Um, we want to, we want to make sure mostly that people aren't going to be problematic or, you know, that they're really going to be dedicated to the program because it is a little bit intensive, you know, there's yeah. a lot of focus and, and work that goes into it. So we want to make sure that, um, individuals that do apply are uh, serious about taking the program. Awesome. Yeah, that's so much uh, time, energy, and resources on your end. So having people who are serious about it seems mm -hmm. really important. Continuing right. to talk about activism, I want to hear about some of the activism that you've done on your travels. But first, I want to hear all the places that you have been through, been to. Because I know, you know, obviously you've been into the U.S. and you travel all over for Kung Fu, but what other countries have you been to? Other countries I've been to, I've uh, been to Spain, I've uh, been to France, Egypt, and of course China. Yeah, and you go to China quite often, and I got to go on one of those trips with you, which was like, I don't know, you get to go all the time because uh -huh. it's with the Kung Fu group. To, for me, it felt like a once-in-a-lifetime chance to like join on to this group that I'm not really a part of, but <laughs> good to see all the cool things that they do. But how have those trips looked different over the years? Um, and why do y'all think it's so important to keep going back to China? Um, yeah, so we, I've been to two of the trips so far. Um, our instructors have been organizing for over 30 years now. Wow. And it's the main reason we go back is to trace the roots of our art. Um, you know, go to see the whole, all the historical places where our Kung Fu comes from. Um, and to really keep that connection with China um, open, you know, because the people there, I mean, they go through a lot and we want to support them in, in the ways that we can, especially those that um, kind of are related to our art and have created those friendships over the years. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's that's been the biggest and most important thing for us is to just retrace our roots and, and show everyone where, where our Kung Fu came from. Which is so important because I feel like that can get lost in so many different practices yes. and philosophy these days, uh, which was really fun on that trip that I went on with you because we went to all of these different temples and saw all these different Kung Fu exchanges that were going on between y'all um, and the people who lived there. And just met some of the coolest, funniest, like kindest people who were either receiving us at their school or a tour guide. And it was just such an interesting way, I for me at least, to go to a different country, you know, through the lens of like an art of something. Mm -hmm. um, right. Which was really interesting. 
we cannot not talk about Hua Mountain on this podcast episode. We must discuss Hua Mountain because I just, I will never forget that. That was like most of the memories of that trip are like overridden by my memories of Hua Mountain. Can you describe what it is to people and um, what it's like climbing up Hua Mountain in China if they've never heard of it before? Yeah, Hua Mountain is one of our historical mountains that we, uh, we talk about a lot in our Kung Fu because we have a system called the Wafist. Um, and the Wafist system very much represents Hua Mountain in that you start from the bottom and it's all stairs going up, 10,000 steps to the top. Uh, the first time I climbed it, it took me two hours. And so I told everyone it was going to take two hours to get to the top. Including um, me. Including you. But I didn't realize this time that they took us to a different part of the mountain. And that was going to take seven hours to get to the top. <laughs> so just for everyone's imagination, like I've heard about this beautiful epic mountain. And Mo has shown me pictures of him like leisurely climbing up the side. There's all these different places to stop. It's super fun, super beautiful. Yeah, there's like a waterfall halfway through. Yeah, there's a waterfall. I, I remember like, I kept talking about the waterfall the whole time. I was like, I can't wait to see the waterfall again. I'm like, I couldn't wait to see the waterfall either. <laughs> so we're, we're walking, right, with our friend Caroline, and we're climbing up this mountain. And um, first of all, I completely lost the group at some point yeah. because they stopped and... For some reason, I was already disconnected, and then they stopped, and I thought, oh, I'm going to find them at, like, one of these pull-offs. So I kept going to look for them, you know, and I'm just on this mountain by myself with no signal, and it literally was 10,000 paved steps to the top. So you're, like, two hours in, and I'm thinking, okay, Mo told us it's a two-hour climb, you know, and you're already hot and sweaty and it's humid and you're just climbing up steps one after another. So first I got lost, then I finally find you again. And I'm like, okay, Mo, it's been like three hours now. We must be close to the top. Yeah, we're almost there. And our tour guide's like, we're almost there. <laughs> seven hours, seven hours, seven hours climbing straight up stairs. I said I would never complain about climbing a mountain again after that. And I have complained about hikes after that. <laughs> but I swore to myself in that moment, I would never complain again. It was so beautiful at the top though. Like, yeah. uh, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Some of the natural buildings they had up there. Um, and then, you know, you feel like you're gonna hike up this mountain and you're at the top, but then you have to hike across the mountain to get where mm -hmm. you wanna go. And there were so many spectacular views. Uh, that was just like a memory that I will never forget. Oh my god! That was gosh. our first time staying on the mountain too, because there was a hotel at the top, and they told us there was only one hotel. <laughs> and so we get there, and then we're at the top, and we see the hotel, like perfect. Yes. And they're like, "No, this hotel's closed down. The hotel you want is on the other side of the mountain." Yes. How many more? It was like two more hours after that. Two to more get to hours. The other side. So you have seven hours up, two hours over. And then remember, we stayed in the hotel. We got up the next morning because there's like there's this spectacular sunrise view. Four in the morning or something like it that. Was, we got up. Yeah, four in the morning after nine hours of climbing the night before. Um, so we wake up. What was it like an hour hike straight up steps again mm -hmm. on yeah. the mountain? And we get to the top and it's cloudy. <laughs> yeah, clouds. 
Cloud. And then back at the hotel, everyone's like, yeah, I saw the sunrise. Yeah. <laughs> that, that just hiking experience was a mixture of awe because of the beauty, um, relief, finally making it places, and frustration because we were just like walking. You know, every time we messed up, it was like an, one more hour of hiking that needed to be added on. Now, when when uh, people say they walked uphill both ways, I think they lived on one mountain. Yeah, <laughs> I think I so, don't, too. I don't know how it worked out, but, like, literally we were going uphill everywhere we went. Everywhere we went. Even if we retraced the same path back, it still felt like we were going yeah, uphill. It's uphill. I promise you, people listening, I promise. I don't know how that happens, but it really did. <laughs> it did. Uh, it's true. That was such an uh, interesting experience that I will really never forget. And uh, we also went to the Great Wall of China. We went to the Zhangjiajie National Forest. Did I say that correctly? Right. Which was beautiful, where they filmed Avatar. Um, and monkeys everywhere. Yes, monkeys. Oh my gosh! And those monkeys were ferocious. They really they scared me. <laughs> I always tell people, they're like, oh, those monkeys are so cute in your pictures. I'm like, they cornered us, they planned an attack to when you're hiking through, and they bombard you from both sides to steal your food. Yep. <laughs> Just so many things from that, that trip that I will never forget. So thank you, Mo, because that wouldn't have <laughs> happened without you. I'm um, glad you came. Yeah, that was just, yeah, such an incredible trip. So... You offer for your students to go to that trip with you, right? Every time that it happens. Right, yeah, we do it about every four years. We're hoping to go next summer, depending on how, how things go with countries opening up and everything like that. So yeah, um, hopefully we'll be able to go again. There's not as many stairs this time. So <laughs> shouldn't be as bad because uh, even after Wild Mountain, we thought we were done with stairs and uh, we were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> There were stairs abound everywhere. Everywhere. Oh, my God. Do you feel like your students who have gone have come back with a completely new appreciation uh, for Kung Fu or just maybe like a stronger tie to the roots of it? Absolutely, yeah. I think they, they really, it really brings out their spirit once they kind of reflect on, on the trip. Um, they, they enjoy the connection that we make. Yeah. out there and all the different sites and everything and um you know for a two-week tour we get to see a lot a lot of things um so even though we're like busy 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 the whole time once you think sit back and think about it you're like man we did a lot in that trip and we saw a lot and we got to meet a lot of people and experience a lot of things it's, it's a really cool trip yeah, I think back, I'm like, we were only there for two weeks, just looking at all the different pictures. I have to mention, too, I think one of my favorite moments was, it was towards the end of two weeks, and we got off that bus in this really small city, because um, you were going to do a kung fu exchange with this other school, and they had a whole parade. It like gives, it like makes you want to cry. They had a whole parade in the streets with music and confetti as soon they like rushed the bus as soon as we mm -hmm. pulled in and i just that's literally probably one of the happiest moments i ever will remember in my life um because i just thought that was like the sweetest thing that mm -hmm. they were really truly celebrating you being there and it just felt like 20 times better than a red carpet i think could ever feel oh absolutely yeah, master Lule hong is a very welcoming individual I mean, they shut down the whole village just for us and just to see us perform and, and to greet us. And yeah, like you said, I think that was the best part of the trip was 
having that welcome. I was like, I come back to the U.S. and nobody welcomed me like that. Yeah. So, What's the, the point of coming back? Yeah, seriously. Every time you come back here, it's just like, all oh, right, you're back. Like, where's my celebration? Where's my, <laughs> where's my uh, fireworks? Yeah. I think I wrote in a blog post about that, that besides being born, that was probably the warmest welcome that I'll ever have in this world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, truly. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So, what are, obviously, that's one of your favorite things about those China trips. But do you have any other favorite things that you'd like to mention to encourage folks to travel China? Um, things that you think that they, they shouldn't miss or just any of your favorite memories? Oh, yeah. I think the best part is all the unexpected parts of the trip. Yeah. But we've had some, uh, I haven't personally had anything too exciting happen. I've heard of some people having some exciting experiences. Like one person got to meet Jackie Chan one year by chance. <laughs> Just was like, I think he was in Beijing and he was uh, um, kind of exploring. His roommates wanted to go to sleep, so he wanted, went out on the town and was like, I'll sleep when I get back home. Yeah. I want to explore China while I'm here. And, and saw, went to like a bar area and saw a limo and the license plate said JC. He's like, no way. <laughs> so he goes in and he orders like a juice or something and, and, uh, asks the uh, bartender, he's like, is there, is Jackie Chan here? And he's like, yeah, yeah, he's in one of those rooms. And so he's going around and opening these little curtains and everything and eventually finds Jackie Chan and starts talking to him. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so you can never know what'll happen on a China trip. That's literally how I felt after our China trip. You literally never know what's going to happen. So if people want to join you doing Kung Fu Mo and they want you as their teacher, can they do that online and in person? Yes, they can do both. Um, so we've got in-person classes here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And then we have, um, again, since COVID started, we started these online training programs. Um, so we have live streams during our normal class time. So you can log in and, and join us for class, ask questions and, and everything like that. I can see the students, they can see me. We have two cameras set up so you can see me from multiple angles. Wow, fancy. Um, and we also have recorded videos too, so you can go back on your own time and, and uh, train at your own pace as well. So that way it kind of complements each other. Um, so yeah, so anyone can join through my website. I'll, I'll send you the link to, to post for that. Yeah, we have people from all over the world now that's joining us online for Kung Fu. I have a student in Spain now. We just moved back there a few months ago. I have a student in Iowa. I have a student that's a couple of hours away in Western North Carolina that's taking classes in Avon enjoying it and keeping up their training wow that's awesome well thank you for spending the time to come onto the podcast and tell us your stories uh if people want to learn more about your work with the peace advocacy network or with kung fu um we'll put the link in the show notes but is there any other place that they can follow you and enjoy your funny videos <laughs> yeah so i'm uh, i'm on instagram and tiktok as vegan kung fu um, and then uh, for Peace Advocacy Network, we have uh, our handles Peace Advocacy, um, so you can follow us on Instagram as well. And yeah, those are the, the main places. Yay. Do you have any final words for people who have maybe been interested in living vegan or maybe even joining Kung Fu, just doing something new? What message would you leave them with? Because obviously you have taken so many leaps to do new things in your life you know even when they're scary so 
what motivation could you give them? Yeah, I mean, I say find somebody that you can you can try new things with. That's always helpful. I mean, when I I joined Kung Fu because one of my friends was interested in martial arts too, and he found the school first, and and we decided to go together. Um, when I first went vegan, you know, even though my friend wasn't vegan, at uh, she was like, you know, I'll I'll try vegan food with you and and try vegan restaurants and, and things like that. So you know, having a support system and finding someone that will try new things with you, I think it's very helpful. Make the world a better place by leaving things better than I found it. You know, whether it be people or the planet or, you know, all kinds of things. Isn't there a quote that says, feel fear and do it anyways? Yeah. 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 So I think for us in significance, we have to do it ourselves. A lot of people are doing things in their life that they're not completely happy with. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it just because, you know, it's a norm and they feel like they feel pressured by society. Definitely. Or they're just, you know, stuck in this rut. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ruts can be comfortable for people. And they can be very comfortable. Comfort is not how you, how you grow as a person. <laughs>